Good morning, guys. Uh, thanks for coming on Memorial Day weekend. I honestly didn't expect that many people to be here. Um, and so it's quite cool to see a lot of you here. It's during the summer. It's Memorial Day weekend. Uh, and so I'm excited for today and what we're going to get into. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Zach. I'm uh, one of the staff members here at H2O. And I've actually, I've been on staff since 2018, been uh, coming around H2O since 2015, actually. Um, and if you haven't been around for that long, our church has actually gone through a lot of change since then. Um, when I first started coming here, we were actually meeting in the TUC cinema on campus. Um, and so where, we, where UC shows movies, that's where we were having church. Um, I remember Grant preaching for the first time. No idea what the sermon series was over. Um, that was my like, first H2O experience. Um, I, I'm back then, I think we had six staff members. We've grown a lot. Um, we have 13 staff members now. Um, and, and when we were in the cinema, I looked back at the uh, number sheet this past week to see how many people we were averaging. And we had about 100 people a week, which is pretty great. Um, if you look at today, we're past semester, obviously, not during the summer or on a holiday weekend. Uh, we averaged about 170 a week. Um, and so our church has gone through a lot of growth in the past eight years. And it might not seem like it as much, going from 100 to 170. Um, but we're also a college ministry, so we cycle through every four to five years. And so now imagine we've, we've gained, gone from 100 to 170 people in eight years. Uh, now imagine over the next two years, we went from 170 to say, I don't know, 3,000, 4,000, maybe even 5,000 over the span of a two-year time. Imagine what it would look like in our church, okay? I mean, I think this place holds about 400 people, so we'd have to find a new place to meet. I don't think any place on UC's campus could hold us unless we went to uh, Nippert Stadium, which I know John's been dreaming about for years. Um, we would need more staff team as well. Like, there's 13 of us on staff, and for a 170-person church, we can handle the cares of the church pretty well. Um, if we grew to 5,000, we'd probably need a lot more people to adequately care for everybody in the church. And we'd probably run into some other issues, too. Like, if we grew to that many people, there'd probably be a language barrier that got introduced in the church, too. Like, we had an influx of people who spoke Arabic. I don't speak Arabic. No one on our staff team speaks Arabic. And so some of the needs of those people that spoke another language would probably be unintentionally glossed over. And so we'll be going through a story today in Acts 6, and this is the exact situation the early church found themselves in. Okay? They... The early church started, and it grew so fast that they had this influx of people like, okay... There's a lot of problems that are arising in the church. What do we do? And so if you haven't been with us uh, for this summer semester, we've, uh, we, we've been going through the book of Acts. We'll actually be covering the whole thing through the summer semester, through life groups and uh, like guided readings as well. Um, and Acts is just a book. It basically details the origin of the church. And so it starts right after the ascension of Jesus, and it goes up until Paul goes on trial in Rome. And so we see the start of the Christian church. Um, and... It, just, it took off so fast that there was a problem that arose, that suddenly what the apostles could care for, they could not adequately care for everybody. And so we're only going to be reading the first uh, seven verses of verse six today, or of Acts 6 today, and how the apostles handled this problem of the growth of people. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump right into Acts 6. Uh, God, I thank you for today. Uh, I just thank you for your goodness. I thank you for the fact uh, that we are sitting here on the other side of the world from where the gospel is preached, uh, from where these stories took place, uh, just able to worship you. God, I praise you for the work that you've done in this church, for the growth you've put in it since one person planted it in 2008 to where we're at now. Um, this local church should not have survived, Lord, just as really the whole church should not have survived, Lord, but your power uh, surpasses all. So God, I pray that your words just would be uh, spoken today. 
um, and that you would just speak through me. So we say this in your name. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts uh, 6, and I'm reading through the CSB the entire time, so it'll be up on the screen. If you want to follow along on your phone or something, it's going to be in the CSB version. So starting in verse 1, in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So I'm just going to stop there for now. We're going to take this apart piece by piece. Uh, so like I said, the church was exploding. And in the midst of the masses coming to the faith, there arose a conflict between the Hellenistic Jews, which is a fancy word for Greek-speaking, and the Hebraic Jews, or the Hebrew-speaking Jews. So there was this language barrier that got introduced into the church. And every day the church would give out daily provisions to the poor people of the community. Um, and so they'd gather people together and they'd give food, they'd give um, whatever was needed to the poor people. And when they were doing so, when that language barrier got introduced, the Hellenistic widows started getting overlooked, not because the Hebraic Jews were intentionally not wanting to give them daily provisions, but because they didn't understand the needs. They couldn't understand the needs of this people because of a language barrier. And so the result was that this complaint arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrews, as we see in verse 1. There was suddenly strife among the church. Um, and this leads to the first of four points I'm going to pull out from these seven verses, and that is this. Unity is easy. Division is not. Or, unity is not easy. Division is. Um, and as, as we keep going throughout Acts this summer, uh, we're going to see more and more examples of just how easy and almost natural it is uh, to be divided and how unity is something that really has to be strived for and worked for. Uh, the language barrier of the church that the uh, church encounters here was pretty much unavoidable as it grew. Like, same for us. If we grew to 5,000 people, it would probably be unavoidable in the Cincinnati area to have some sort of language barrier. And, but it still naturally caused some sort of divide for the early church. But honestly, even like beyond language barriers, um, division is something that naturally occurs as different people come together. And for some reason, as I look at like the modern church today, it seems like the modern church tolerates, almost enjoys division to some degree. And I think part of this is due to this, our sinful nature um, and the fact that Satan wants division. Satan wants to cause division wherever and however he can. He wants to splinter the body of Christ however he can. And I think the other part just comes down to how individualistic our culture has become. Like, we live in this culture that's very me-focused, this inward focus. It has this idea that your truth is your truth, that what I believe is right because I believe it. And it creates this very individualistic culture. And all this is kind of under the guise of unity but it, and bringing people together, but it's completely divided us. And really, as Christians, we shouldn't be that surprised by this. Uh, in 2 Timothy uh, 3, Paul writes this to Timothy. But know this, hard times will come in the last days, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, ir irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. That phrase in there, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, I think it's a pretty adequate phrase to just kind of sum up where our culture's at anymore. I think it's easy to look around. It doesn't matter. Honestly, I don't know if it matters where you're at with your faith. It's easy to look around and see that our culture loves pleasure rather than God. And I think all of us would agree on this, but also ignore the last three words of this verse, which is avoid such people. And so, like, as much as we can, we can all nod our heads and agree that division is bad, 
I, I look at the modern church, especially the modern American church, and there seems to be this willingness to sit passively in disunity, almost like disunity has become normalized. Um, and so I want, I want to clarify here, what I'm not saying is that we should always strive for unity with everyone. Uh, if like, for, for example, if a particular church is preaching that, let's say, Jesus is not God, uh, that he didn't rise from the dead, that salvation is by works, not by grace, um, that all roads lead to heaven, that's, uh, like, any, anything that is not a primary, that is contrary to a primary issue in the gospel, that is central to the core of Christianity, um, those are things we shouldn't strive for unity for because they're going against the gospel. We see Paul call out churches that are going against the gospel in the epistles. He called, the beginning of Galatians begins with Paul essentially saying, you wicked Galatians, you have, why have you so quickly turned to another, another gospel? What I am saying, though, is that for those of us who are Christians and agree on these primary issues, the core doctrines of Christianity, we're all part of one body, and it so often acts as if we are at odds with another for minor, whether it be like theological differences, church governmental structures, um, possibly even language barriers. It doesn't mean we all have to be a part of the same denomination, uh, the same local church, or even agree on all the little things. But that we as believers should be united with other believers in pursuing the Great Commission and the mission of the, the church, which I think John said it best last week. Like, the mission of the church is simply to make God known. It's like, we can only do that if we're united together as believers. And uh, I, I actually, I started writing the sermon on Tuesday at the 86. If you were at 86, you probably saw me there most of the week uh, writing this. Um, and as I came up with my outline on the four main points, I sat down with my little Bible and just started circling things that I saw um, this is, in my mind, going to be the shortest section of my sermon. Um, but as I started like, writing it out and looking into this idea of unity and division, it just kind of kept striking me how easy it is to slip into this passivity of this unity. And normalize to the point where you convince myself, and I convince myself, uh, that we almost should be divided on certain issues. That I'm in the right because I interpret a certain passage of Scripture this way. And honestly, I got pretty convicted about one area specifically, uh, where I've really justified being a disunity in regards to the miraculous gifts, um, such as like healing, tongues, and prophecy. Um, and so, right now, I honestly have no idea where I stand in regards to those. I'm not trying to make a statement about what is correct or anything, um, but I, I've always leaned more towards the cessationist side, this idea that miraculous gifts ceased with the apostol end of the apostolic era. Um, and our church has steadily been gaining more and more charismatic people about it. We've had a lot more charismatic students, uh, staff members, and and, and essentially charismatic means that you believe the miraculous gifts are still present today. Um, and I, I found myself, as I was like reading through this passage and looking at disunity, I'm like, okay, there is, I hate saying this, like there is something in me that has like almost disdain towards the charismatic movement. Um, it's, like, it's like my natural instinct, because I disagree with that interpretation of the scriptures, like my nature is this disunity in my heart. My, like, my nature is to listen to the kingdom of the world over the kingdom of God. And so I, I share this partially to not sound, because I think I would have sounded very hypocritical up here, <laughs> uh, sharing about this idea of unity and disunity and having like the state of disunity in my heart towards, frankly, some other people in our church. Um, but I also share it because it speaks into how easy it is to allow disunity to slip into us. Like, it wasn't something I woke up one day and was like, oh, you know what, I really don't want to be united with people. I really don't want to strive for unity with a certain people because of a minor theological difference. It's like I interpreted the scriptures differently, and just over time, I just kind of built up this tolerance to almost just being okay with that disunity. 
Like, the miraculous gifts are not central to our faith. They are not a primary issue. So why have I let this get in the way of unity? So as I said, as a church, we do not have to agree on everything to be united. But we must be humble enough to actually separate what is central to the gospel and what is not central. If someone is arguing for something that goes against the gospel, by all means, stand your ground. We see, like I said, Paul does that in Galatians. Paul does that all the time. We see theologians and pastors and uh, evangelists do that throughout history to stand their ground when there's, not something, when there's something central to the gospel that they are contradicting. But if, but if it's not central, like we ought to be humble enough um, in a church that is willing to actually humble ourselves for the sake of unity so that way we can actually pursue the mission of God together and not have these minor disunities within us because that's going to completely destroy our ability to actually spread the gospel. Disunity really at its core thrives in pride. I, th- I think most sins you can boil down to pride. Disunity is just the same. Like, it thrives in pride, and pride is really just the antithesis of God. And so, I mean, if you're wondering, like, how do I know if something's a primary issue? Um, for one, like, talk to one of us on staff. Um, but also, like, I'll say no matter what, take it to the Lord and pray for discernment. Like, if it's, if it's central, pray for humility to speak to the other person in a clear way and to turn them towards the truth, to evangelize to them, to share the truth with them. And if it's not central, then pray for for humility, repent, and seek unity with them as a brother and sister in Christ. So we're going to continue on in Acts 6. Um, And so pick it up in verse 2. It says, The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. So there's this issue of disunity in the church, okay? Um, there's this language barrier that came up between the Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews, and the apostles were faced with, this problem, faced with this problem of, like, how do we go about solving this? There's an issue. We need to find a solution. The problem is we're already teaching. Like, we are spending our entire days preaching and sharing the gospel. We can't do both. Like, we could give this up and go do this, but we cannot logically do both. And so their solution was to pick seven men who are full of spirit and wisdom and delegate responsibility. And, and this is the second point we wanna, I want to hit on today, which is this. Delegation is necessary. And I think it's necessary for actually a few reasons. The first of which being that without delegation, there is no multiplication. I, I, think about this for once. Like, Jesus delegated responsibility. If there's one person who has ever existed who definitely did not need to delegate, it was Jesus. I mean, he was God in the flesh. He could have done everything by himself, and it would not have made a difference to what he did on the earth. And yet, when we look at the way that Jesus lived, he lived his life where he delegated responsibility to the apostles. He spent time with them, and he devoted majority of his time on earth investing in them. In Matthew 10, we read, uh, starting in verse 1, Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. Skipping down a bit to verse 5, Jesus sent out these 12 disciples, uh, these 12, after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons, Freely you received, freely give. 
He gave them authority and trusted them to act on his behalf. If you look at the beginning of Mark's gospel, the first thing that Jesus says is, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's telling them to do the same thing here. He's giving them authority and sending them out on his behalf to, send the same, to spread the same message. Like, they weren't casting out demons in their own power. Uh, they were casting them out in the name of Jesus because he gave them the ability to do so. And so the question is, like, why? Why would Jesus want to bring these 12 uneducated people around with him and have them do the work that only he is really adequately fit to do as God? And I think the answer is pretty simple, honestly. Like, Jesus saw the bigger picture. I guarantee the apostles at that time had no idea what was going on. They had, Jesus tried to give them hints that he was going to go die on the cross, that there would be a day that he wouldn't be there. The apostles missed it. If you read through the Gospels, they missed it completely until after it happened. They're like, oh, like, this is what he was talking about. Like, he saw the bigger picture. He knew a day was coming when he would no longer be there. And for three years, his ministry lasted three years, his entire time on earth, he dedicated his life to showing and teaching the apostles and those closest to him how to mimic him. Like, I, I, when I often think about what Jesus did during his life, my mind directly goes towards the miracles he did. Like, he healed people, uh, he raised people from the dead, he casted out demons of people. Um, but it's, it's easy to gloss over, like, how much time he simply spent with the disciples. It's not covered a lot because we don't want to read 20 chapters over them walking between two cities for a week and a half. Um, but during that time walking between two cities, he spent it all with the disciples. He had every single meal with the, disciple, with the uh, disciples. Like, he was, they were with him when he performed those miracles. They were with him in everything that he did. Like, everything he did to reveal himself in the kingdom of God was all pointing the disciples towards preparing them for the day that he was no longer there. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul writes this, um, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Like, frankly, multiplication is essential to the growth of the kingdom. I, I mentioned our church grew from 100 to 170 people in eight years. That would not be the case if we had not actually multiplied and delegated because we cycle out every four to five years. Like, most of you here were not here in 2015 when I first started coming here it's because everyone else graduated and left. Like, our church only survives because multiplication happens. And, and frankly, our goal as believers shouldn't just be to multiply and delegate. It should be to actually make ourselves replaceable. I, 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 it's my goal. It's, I think it should be all of our goals to raise people up who can not only do our jobs as well, of us, as, well as we can, but to do them better and, and exceed us. It's the only way the kingdom will keep advancing further and further. So like, if we want to be a church and people who multiply ourselves, we must be people who delegate and empower others. Secondly, delegation is necessary because, I mean, quite simply, we can't do everything. Uh, so like, you, you don't see me up here preaching too often. Um, and part of the reason is that my main role on our staff team is directing our sound team. Like, I'm usually sitting behind the scenes. I like being behind the scenes, not really being up on the stage. Uh, today's a little bit of a different story. Um, but like, imagine if I was responsible every single week for preaching, uh, for playing worship every single week, for discipling everybody in our church, for greeting everybody that comes in, for managing the finances, for doing all the evangelism. Everything that happens in the church, imagine if one person was responsible for all of it. I know for me, even thinking about that, it's quite exhausting. Um, I have a very small capacity, even compared to some other people on our staff team. Um, and quite simply, one person cannot do everything. Like, he would run himself into the ground in, in pursuit 
of it. And in, in, this, like, in this goal of doing everything, he would do absolutely nothing. In uh, verse 2, note how the apostles actually realized this. They say, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word to wait on tables. So they didn't say, it wouldn't be right to uh, take on serving tables in addition to preaching the word. Like, they realized that in order to serve the needs of the church and actually care for the Hellenistic widows, they would have to give something up. They would, ha- they would not be able to preach the word as they were. It was, not an, it was not a both. They realized it was an either or. They couldn't do both of them. And that was a trade they weren't willing to make. And so the response was simply to delegate the responsibility and to empower other people to care for the needs of the church in their stead. We can't do everything. I don't think I need to spend that much time on this point. I think all of us have probably felt uh, overwhelmed at one point or another by trying to take on too much um, or just because of life, life circumstances. Um, and I mentioned all those different responsibilities on Sunday that would, frankly, just run me into the ground if I tried to do the, all of them. Um, but there's a, another reason I just don't do everything on Sunday. Like, I am not the out, most outgoing. I'm not the most merciful person in our church for greeting people. I'm not the best preacher in our staff team. I'm not the most musically gifted person in our church, like, the most structured or able to take care of those finances. Like, the Lord has gifted so many people in our church in so many unique ways to do all those things better than me. It would not make sense for me to be the primary preacher because there's other people that do that better. And so why would I attempt to do things that other people are naturally more gifted at? And, and this is really just the third reason that delegation is necessary. The church relies on the diversity of the gifts to carry out the mission of God. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul addresses this very issue. He says, for just as, one, as, uh, for just as the body is one and has many parts, in all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part but many. If the foot should say, because I am I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less of the body. And if the ears should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less, um, less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the scent of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of these parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they all were the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. Like, if I try to do everything, if you try to do anything, if any of us try to do everything in the church, it would not be done as well. It would be like only having an eye. We would have no other senses. We wouldn't be able to walk around and just be an eye sitting up here on stage. We wouldn't be able to do anything. We'd be useless. And as believers, we as the body of Christ can only function if we are working together in unity, leading into the giftings God has given us. You are not the best person for everything just as I am not the best person for everything. There are, there's, there's, there's someone better out there for certain jobs than you, just like you are going to be a great person for other jobs in the kingdom. When the apostles are delegated in Acts 6, uh, if you look at the people they chose, uh, they specifically chose people who were better equipped to serve the needs of the widows. They chose Hellenistic-speaking people, or Greek-speaking people to fit the needs of the Hellenistic Jews. Like, there is no unimportant gifting in the kingdom. There's no small role in the kingdom of God. And, and if this is something you haven't really thought about much, like, how do I, how do I fit in? What am I gifted in? Um, I would encourage you to think about these two questions this week. 
Um, uh, oh, they disappeared. Uh, <laughs> so what, what are you good at? Quite simply, what are you good at? And then how has the Spirit gifted you uniquely to serve the kingdom? And so ask yourself those questions this week. If you don't know how you best fit in, ask yourself, what are you good at? What do I enjoy doing? What do I see myself doing? And then how has the Spirit uniquely gifted you to serve? Ask your friends those questions. Like, if you don't fully know, ask the people closest to you, like, hey, what, are, what do you see that I'm gifted in? How do you think the Spirit has gifted me to actually push the kingdom of God further on? Like, no matter who you are, there is no small role in the kingdom. And so I, we, just, we need to be a church that finds that role and then takes a part in the mission of God. Okay, so moving on to Acts 6, um, verse 4 says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles did not just delegate. They prioritized what they were gifted in. And what they prioritized was prayer and the ministry of the word. Trying to do ministry without prayer is like trying to, like if you wanted to sail across the Atlantic Ocean and you took four logs together and like tied them together with no sail, no paddle, and just kind of pushed off the, pushed off the Carolina shore and just hoped to get over to England somehow. It's like trying to do Ministry without prayer is just like trying to sail across the ocean with a boat and no sail or no paddle. Like just as the wind enables the boat to go in a specific direction, prayer enables us to carry out the mission of God. And this is the third point. Prayer is essential. If you look at Jesus' ministry, like he had a consistent rhythm of prayer and work. He would retreat to the Father and pray, and then he'd go and do ministry. He'd retreat to the Father and pray and do ministry. As you read the Gospels, you see this rhythm continually happen. And if you look at the disciples, how they lived their lives, they learned it from Jesus. They mimicked him. Um, just look at the prayer life of the early church. So we've only covered five, verses of, or five chapters of Acts so far, and these are the instances where you see the disciples intentionally going in to pray. In Acts 1, 12 through 14, right after Jesus ascends into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near, Jeru- uh, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day-long journey. When they arrived, they went to a room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Later on in Acts 1, as they were choosing who to replace Judas with, they say, or they, it says this, so they proposed to Joseph, Card, uh, Barbasas, who is also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, you, Lord, know everyone's hearts. So show which of these two you have chosen. After Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, so those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. In Acts 4, after Peter and John are released from Jewish custody, uh, they go back to the rest of the congregation and report what had happened. And they say this, And it says this, um, when they had prayed, the place where they assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Everything the apostles in the early church, church did started and ended in prayer. So why would we do our ministry any differently? Why would we live our lives any differently? We've been given the example by Jesus. We've been given the example by the disciples. And, and yet, I, I look at myself sometimes, I'm like, did I even pray today? Like, did I go throughout my day? Did I go throughout my week without even considering what the Lord has in store for me? Like, if, if I actually want to follow Jesus, I need to mimic his lifestyle. 
And part of that mimicking of the lifestyle is following his lifestyle of prayer. Everything he did, everything the early church did, started and ended in prayer. If you want a really in-depth analysis on uh, prayer and fasting in Scripture, because uh, frankly I don't have time to really go into it today, uh, there's a pastor called David Platt who does a thing called Secret Church every single year. Um, and it's like a six-hour-long Bible study over a certain topic. And I think it was in uh, 2019 he preached over prayer, fasting, and the pursuit of God. And so he went from Genesis to Revelation with all the times in Scripture you see prayer and fasting come up. And the, and the amount of times is rather, it's quite astonishing to be honest. Like I, I don't notice it that often when I'm reading through Scripture. Every single time it says, and they, and they fasted, or and they prayed. And he goes through every single occurrence. And so like I said, it's six hours long. Break it up into parts if you want to. But it's really cool to see just how intrinsic prayer is to the Bible and to God's, and, and to really just how we're supposed to live our lives. Like, God, since the beginning, has designed us to be living in a close relationship with Him in prayer. No matter what your giftings may be, no matter what we do, we cannot do it without prayer. And so, reading on, starting in verse 5, uh, Luke writes this This proposal pleased the whole company, the proposal to appoint seven men. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, uh, Nicanor, Timon, Parmamus, and uh, Nicholas, a a, uh, convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid laid their hands on him. So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, So if you remember back to Grant's initial sermon over Acts, um, or if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, Acts 1.8 says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so in reality, this is the outline of the entire book of Acts. Okay, you can break up the book of Acts to the ministry in Jerusalem. You can see them spread to Judea and Samaria, and then you can see it spread to the ends of the earth, being in Acts, Rome, since Rome was every, all roads lead to Rome, and from Rome, the gospel went everywhere. This is the outline of Acts. And to be honest, the gospel never sort of survived that long. Um, like, those preaching it were being persecuted to the point of death. Every single apostle would end up dying for what they believed in. Like, uh, <laughs> and yet somehow, by God's power, the gospel survived and landed here 2,000 years later. And if you look at church history, what sparked the gospel's growth more than anything was actually the persecution that was meant to stop its growth. Like, every single time somebody was martyred, it seems like the gospel is a spark. Somebody threw gasoline on the fire, and it spread even further. Um, the Greek word for witness is uh, actually uh, martaeus, which is the basis for a word martyr. And it simply means to be associated with witnessing to the point of death. And, so, and this is where the word martyr comes from. It's people who witnessed about the gospel, who witnessed about what they saw to the point of being persecuted and killed for it. And in uh, verse 5 that we just read, we're introduced to a character named Stephen. Uh, and we're going to be diving a lot into his story this Thursday at Life Group. And so if you want to see how all of this plays out, I encourage you to come to Life Group this week as we go through the story of Stephen. Um, but Stephen would actually be the first of many in the early church to be persecuted and killed for their faith. But what I want you to see here in Acts 7 is that it kind of acts as a sort of progress report. Like Luke kind of stops, Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts, and he kind of stops the narrative here and gives a progress report about what happens, what is happening. And instead of the gospel stopping with the death of Stephen, as 
the Jews expected, as I think most people, most of us would expect, like, someone is stoned to death in front of you, you'd expect what they're preaching to end right there. Well, who would continue preaching that after watching that? And instead of the gospel stopping with him, it sparked it outside of Jerusalem. And in Acts 8.1, we read this. Saul agreed with putting Stephen to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. It, it should not have gotten out of Jerusalem, and yet somehow by killing this man, it made people scatter, and they still started preaching the message that got this man killed. If we go on to Acts 11.19, we see the next break in the narrative happen. Um, now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as uh, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So it started in Jerusalem, Stephen was killed, spread further, and then it spread even further. And, and Acts 7 says it all. So the word of God spread. And despite repeated attempts to really just stop um, the spread of Christianity at the start, nothing worked. I mean, the Jews tried it initially when they tried to kill Jesus and successfully <laughs> killed Jesus. Um, but three days later, he rose from the dead, and his death actually sparked the gospel instead of stopping it. Like, the Jews had hoped that what, if we kill this man, we put a stop to his teachings, we put a stop to everything he is preaching, and we're done with him. Instead, they created an even bigger problem because it sent it elsewhere. They tried to stop it by uh, arresting Peter and John in Acts 4 and ordered them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. To which, uh, Peter and John simply refused and continued preaching in the name of Jesus, saying, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. <clears throat> and if Acts 1-8 is kind of an outline of the gospel, or if Acts 1-8 is an outline of the book of Acts, I think Acts um, 4-20 here is just kind of a theme, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. This is Paul's entire story. I mean, you have a man who was persecuting Christians, who was then converted to Christianity, and was so bold to take the gospel and spread it to those who were persecuting him, to before the high councils, before, likely before the emperor of Rome himself, he got the opportunity to share the gospel. It's like, this is a man who lived this out, who was unable to stop speaking about what he had seen and heard. They tried to stop the gospel by killing Steve, Stephen, and instead threw gas on it. And so, if you have time this week, I just encourage you, look up some, like, church history um, and how the spread of Christianity happened, because there is no way it should have gotten to this point on the globe, the opposite side of the world, 2,000 years later. It should have stopped in Jerusalem, but by the power of God, it reached us. And so this is my uh, fourth and final point, that the book of Acts will just continue to hammer home time and time again. Nothing can stop the advance of God's kingdom. And so the band can come back up here, and uh, I'm going to pray. God, I thank you that nothing could stop your kingdom. I thank you that you are the one who is in control and that despite just these repeated attempts to stop your gospel, that it, you simply wouldn't let it be stopped, Lord, um, that you wanted to save us so badly that you did everything in your power to bring us the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would just be with us the rest of the service. Um, I pray that uh, you would allow us to be a church that seeks unity and not division. Uh, a church that uh, loves you over the world, uh, that doesn't have this individual, individualistic nature that the world has. God, I pray that we would just be a people um, that seek after what, that, that we seek after your heart, Lord, um, that we serve you above ourselves, um, and that we just, we are this church that loves you. 
God, I pray that this church will continue just spreading the mission of God um, and partaking in the mission that you have set before us. Nothing can stop your kingdom, God. Nothing can stop its advance. Um, and God, I pray that this can just be our mindset and our prayer, um, that your gospel will just be continuing to advance on this campus, in this country, um, and with our friends in Southeast Asia and Costa Rica, Lord. Um, God, I pray that your gospel will just continue to advance. So Lord, we say this in your name. Amen.